You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We're talking about failing forward. We're talking about this idea of failure, and we're looking at biblical failures to help us in our own journey. If you have any questions at any time, we will do our best to answer those. And if I can't, I will try to answer them to the week. And if I can after that, I will say, I do not know. And that's okay, too. So uh, the, the number will be at the bottom here. You can text my personal number if it's a dead zone for you and you don't get it. But yeah, we're looking at failure because we hate to fail something that we don't want to do. We try to avoid it. A lot of us spend a lot of energy and time trying to avoid it. We looked at this quote. We'll probably look at regularly from Dr. Taya Cohen. She's at Carnegie Mellon. She's one of the head researchers in business there. And she says, at the root of failure and the fear of failure is shame, which is feeling like one is a bad person and has a flawed or defective self. We avoid failure because it does not make us feel good. It makes us feel bad about ourselves. And yet, we learn over and over again in Scripture that failure is one of God's greatest tools to healing, to progress, to moving forward, which is what I hope you get in that video about seeing all those crashes and then end up on, on the moon, right, or in space, that, that we fail forward and we've made so, much, so many great strides. Today, I want to talk about Jonah, and we're going to do the whole book, which means... I have way too much sermon, and instead of paring it down, I'm just going to talk faster. So bear with me, forgive me, we're going to go through it. I love this story. I've done it a few years ago um, because, I love this story because we teach it as a, as a kid's story, but it is n- definitely 100% not a kid's story. It's got the big fish, it's got wild stuff that's going on, and that's on purpose, the biblical author is trying to make you think. So what's going on in this book? First, it's not a book about Jonah's prophecies. It's really one of the only, uh, he's a prophet, but it's not him. It's not a book of his sermons. It's a book about his life, which is unique. Uh, Jonah is God's prophet. He's the guy in this, right? It's about him. And yet he's the bad guy. He's God's guy, and yet he's the bad guy in the story. The prophet, the man of God, is the bad guy. The book is satire. You know what satire is, but just to put some labels on it, it's where you take known characters and you put them in extreme situations so that we can laugh at them, but at the end of the day, we're really laughing at ourselves. Probably the best known in our culture is Saturday Night Live. They take politicians, they take celebrities, they put them in extreme situations, and we go, look how ridiculous these people are. Look how ridiculous like American celebrity and American politics are, and then really we're laughing at ourselves, right, as participants in all of that. And so that's what this book is. It takes known characters and, and stereotypical characters like Jonah, who shows up in one other place in the Old Testament as a, as a not good prophet. It takes these pagan hardened sailors and they turn out to be more more faithful to the divine presence than the man of God. It takes the king of the Assyrian empire, the biggest, baddest empire on the planet. They were murderous. They would skin people alive when they showed up and they have paper thin consciences to God's call on their life. 
It takes all these known characters and it puts them in these extreme situations, flips it on its head, but ultimately the book is a mirror for you. Not a, I mean, we want kids to know the story, but it's not necessarily a kid's story. It's supposed to be a, you're supposed to laugh, you're supposed to cry, you're supposed to have a ton of questions, and at the end, it looks to you. And again, let's talk about the Assyrian Empire. The reason I'm doing Jonah now is because we talked about the Assyrian Empire last week with Isaiah and King Uzziah, and that's the context going on. Remember, the green part is, is the Assyrian Empire. And little old baby Israel, or at least half of Israel, is right here. Jonah's going to be above the yellow, but I mean, this is the context of this, is that little baby Israel prophet is going to be called to go into the heart the capital city of the Assyrian Empire and preach good news, and he's going to want no part in that. Which, I'm just going to kind of spoil the book for you right away and tell you his deepest failure. And hopefully we can learn from his failure, uh, and we can take his failure and fail forward. His failure is that he doesn't want the love and forgiveness he's experienced to be shown to his enemies. That's his failure. That radical, scandalous grace, love, and mercy of God. He wants it for himself and his people, but he absolutely refuses to let it be shown to his enemies. In the beginning of the book, which we'll read the passage, he's going to be called to go to his enemies and preach, and he doesn't want to. And you're going to think he's scared. Can we go back? You're going to think he's scared. Oh, come on. You're going to think he's scared because you're asking him to go into the heart of the enemy. You're asking him to go. It's like being parachute dropped into Berlin during you know, World War II and holding a sign that's like down with the Third Reich or whatever. Like, you think he just doesn't want to do that because he's afraid, but that's not it. He tells you later in chapter 4, he just doesn't want his enemies to experience God's love. This is what he says when, when God talks to him at the end of the book. Jonah says, this is why I fled, because I know that you are merciful and compassionate. You are very patient, you are full of faithful love, and you are willing not to destroy. Jonah is full of all these biblical allusions, and this is a reference back to Exodus 34, where God tells the people of God what he is like. And those are the characteristics, that how, that's how God describes himself. And so Jonah takes God's own words and throws them back in his face and says, I didn't want to go to my enemies because I know that that's what you're like. And I don't want them to experience that. He's mad about God's grace being open to everyone. So I guess the question for us, as we're talking about the bad news, is who are our enemies? Oftentimes we think globally when we're looking at American culture. This is a recent poll from The Economist most U.S. adults think uh, it's Russia and China. China's got the edge on that. Some people will throw in North Korea and then Iran after that. That's who we think about when we think about our global enemies, the people who don't want us to succeed or to thrive or our American experiment to move forward. But I'll also let you know that it's common for us as individuals to think that we don't have enemies. We inherited that from Uh, the more posh classes who like to act like everything's fine and we don't have any enemies. And so we do that too. And so I'm just going to give you my working definition of of an enemy or someone that we 
want to be enemies with, even though we won't say that out loud. It's anyone who doesn't want us to thrive and be successful or anyone that we don't want to thrive and be successful. And sometimes I'll be honest, I have that thought where I'm like, God, could you just take them down a couple pegs, you know? <laughs> like, just humble. That's the holiest way that I express my enemy. Lord, I pray that you just take out some rungs of that ladder and just maybe teach them a little lesson in humility, which is saying it out loud, not great. But I think if we're honest, we do that kind of stuff often, often. And I'll just say as a side note, which we'll get to later, it is good to be able to identify your enemies. Even if it's that you don't harbor any ill will towards them, but they harbor it towards you because we need to know the direction to whom to love. But let's jump in this. We're going to read a passage, pull a point, read a passage, pull a point, read a passage, pull a point in our classic style, head, heart, hand, something for us to know, something for us to feel and experience, and something for us to do. And here's the opening passage of Jonah. It says this, the Lord's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son. And if you knew the Hebrew, this is a part where you're supposed to laugh because uh, that's classic opening for a prophet the word of the Lord came. That, I mean, this is, this is all over the place in the Old Testament. Jonah means dove. Amittai means faithfulness. He is the dove, son of faithfulness. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that that's not true about him. And especially if you know this book, he's the grouchiest, orneriest, meanest, like just less generous person you can imagine. He's the bad guy. The dove, son of faithfulness. The word of the Lord came to him and says, Get up and go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, that great city, and cry out against it, for their evil has come to my attention. That's his mission. So Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish, Tarshish from the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship headed to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish, away from the Lord. I did not say that out loud last night. It is only in my head. Tarshish. <laughs> Sounds funny when I say it. Twice it tells us. Why is he going to Tarshish? To flee from the Lord. Why is he going there? To flee from the Lord. The idea that's coming out to me as I read this again that God wants us to know is that sometimes our idea of the good life and God's idea of the good life are way different. What we think is good for us is not always what's good for us. And what we, what we experience God's call for us that we are avoiding sometimes is actually what is good for us. Here's the map, y'all. Dub, son of faithfulness, is in, uh, is in Israel. He goes down to Joppa, which we're going to have a lot of down language in the next point. And he's going that way. He's going west to Tarshish. He's supposed to go east to the great city. And he's going, I mean, in, in the, the Middle Eastern worldview at that time, that's the end of the planet. You go, it's basically... Once you get past the Straits of Gibraltar right there, you're basically going off the edge of the world. There is nothing past Spain or whatever is there. 
And the reason he's going there is to flee from the presence of the Lord, which should make you laugh. It's not possible. But he thinks somehow if he gets to the edge of the world, God won't find him. Tarshish. But it was also this exotic place in their mind. Something like Timbuktu or Shangri-La. It was peaceful and relaxing and different. My man Eugene Peterson, who I, I love dearly and admire, he was a pastor and a scholar in his own right. He talks about this in his book called Under the Unpredictable Plant, which I read and enjoyed. He says, and why Tarshish? I feel silly saying it, y'all. For one thing, it's a lot more exciting than Nineveh. But Tarshish was something else. It was exotic. It was adventure. This old school scholar says that in the popular imagination, it became a distant paradise, Shangri-La. This place was the end of the world. It was an exotic locale. And that is where Jonah wants to go, to flee from the presence of the Lord. This is my cousin, Eric, was in the Air Force. Uh, we lived together most of our life, so really like brothers. There were five of us lackey boys and zero girls besides my grandmother and my mother. Um, and so a lot of testosterone in this running around here. But we were close, and he graduated high school, and he joined the Air Force, and we all thought that that was a great idea to try to figure out how to overcome these. He was the oldest of us, just to try to pave a path. I'm still in high school, if you can't tell. Um, and he was going to the Air Force, and we said, where are you going to go? He's like, I get to put down three places of preference, and they're going to help me try to pick one, right? That's what they tell you. I don't know if that happens. It's not been the experience in, in, in my life. So he's like, there's some bases in Hawaii. I'm going to try to go there. There's like three bases in Japan I really want to land in. He's like, maybe somewhere along, maybe somewhere in an Asian country. That'd be cool. Some exotic locale. He graduated in 2001. He joined the Air Force in June of 2001. If you don't know, about four months later was 9-11. He ended up in the Middle East so fast. All of that Tarshish he wanted, right? That Hawaiian beach vacation, sitting on a runway somewhere with palm trees swaying, gone. He got called to Nineveh, right? It wasn't where he wanted to go. It was where he was needed and asked to go. He did end up in London. I, got to, I mean, in England, I got to visit him out there. Then he ended up in Alabama. And I was, I'm a California boy, and so I was like, Alabama, bro. And he was like, it's so beautiful. He found the beauty where he was. But my point is, is that he had this idea about where he wanted to go, and he ended up somewhere completely different. And maybe that's what you're experiencing in your life. Maybe you had big plans. Maybe you had somewhere that you wanted to be. But what I think I'm taking away from this story today is that you don't live here on accident. That at least for this season, God is calling you to this community. And it may be Tarshish for you. And it may be Nineveh for you. Because it's got its problems. And it's got its issues. And I know that sometimes somewhere in you, there's a desire to be far away and exotic in different places with greener grass. But God has called us at this time in this space to be here. And sometimes we desire to be not here. What would it look like 
This is my question I'm taking away from this opening part. What would it look like if we fully lived into the situation that we're in? Instead of someday or somewhere or some, with someone else, like what would it be if it was right here, right now? If we thought that this was the place that God had called us to in the midst of this, not daydreaming about exotic locales, but being fully present to this particular situation. Part of Jonah's failure is that he rejects the life that God has for him and instead chooses what he thinks is best. And just letting you know, we are prone to do that too. What does God want us to feel? We've got a lot more story to get through, so bear with me. And the words are going to be infinitely too small for you to read, but I put them up there to keep us faithful to the text. So immediately he gets ready to board the ship. It says he goes down to Joppa. He finds a ship. He pays the fare. He, the actual language is that he goes down into the boat. He gets on the boat, and they are heading towards this exotic place, and God sends a great storm. But Jonah had gone down into the boat. Third time it says down. And then the fourth time he fell down into a deep sleep while this great storm raged all around. And these pagan sailors do what they do best. They started praying to any god that they could think of, each to their own god, it says. But the thing in this story that makes it satire is that these people who don't know the true Lord are keenly aware that this storm is of divine origin, that there's something divinely initiated about what's happening, and they are awake to the spiritual reality. They begin throwing stuff overboard to try to lighten the load. That whole journey that they had, all their money, right? Everything that, that this journey was about, the cargo is gone. It's not helping. Finally, they cast some lots. They roll the dice. They pull the sticks. I don't know exactly what they did, but it is determined that it was somebody else's fault. It was the guy sleeping. The captain comes down and says, how can you be asleep? They bring him back up, said, you should be praying to your God. Then finally they cast lots, they figured out it was his fault, and they said, what? What do you do and where you're from and what country, what country are, uh, uh, and people are you from? He said, I'm a Hebrew, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Again, you're supposed to laugh, because he's, he's trying to escape the God through sea, and he tells them, he's like, my God actually created all of this. Like, it's so futile the way he's trying to flee from the God who made everything. The men were terrified and said, what have you done? Because he told them that he was fleeing the Lord. They said to him, what will we do to make the seas calm? In an extreme act of selfishness, Jonah says, just throw me overboard. Like he, he could have just jumped, but he was like, you do it. Right? Like, you throw me. And they have such, there's so much anxiety for them about this. Right? He says, throw me overboard. And the men, they tried not to. They tried to manage the seas, but it became too much. So they called out to the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they said, please, Lord, don't let us perish on the count of this man's life. Don't blame us for his blood. You're the Lord. Whatever you want, you can do. These pagan, hardened sailors who worship anything that will move are now worshiping the God of Israel. And Jonah's selfishness has put everyone in danger. The men worshiped the Lord. 
with profound reverence. They throw him overboard, and Jonah is famously swallowed by a great fish. Everything in this book is great. Great city, great fish, great storm, great boat. Everything is exaggerated, and now there's a great fish. God's talking to me about, in the midst of this, about what I can feel and what I can experience is this, that our moral failures and our failure of character impacts everyone around us. And we don't like to think that that's true, but Scripture often, over and over again, teaches us that it's true. Then the men were terrified, the Scriptures tell us. What have you done? So they called on the Lord saying, please, Lord, don't let us perish on the account of this man's life. Jonah's selfishness and rebelliousness is spilling over onto these men in a negative way. The direction for the whole story is down, down, down. This is a literary device. It's on purpose. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. He goes down into the hole of the ship and he falls down into a deep, deep slumber. And this is a a metaphor for how his moral failing is making him to be unaware of the presence of God and, and the ramifications that are spilling onto the people around him. His negative actions make him asleep to his moral failing failings, and he becomes more unaware of the way he is hurting the people around him. And we are the same way. We don't think that sometimes our moral decisions impact those around them. Here's a 30-second commercial. Name? Ron Martinez. Welcome. And my condolences. Uh-huh. Uh... There seem to be a few weekends missing. You know the slogan. Super catchy. Lasted 20 years. What happens what happens here stays here, right? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. By the way, that's not what happens like. If you have questions about that, let me know. send them. I'll tell you why that becomes one of, the, you know, one of the prevailing images of heaven. But such, such an idea that his own moral failings, if, as long as it happened in Vegas, they didn't even make it to God's notice, right? To God's awareness that somehow heaven is unaware of his moral failings because it happened in a certain place. I think sometimes we have that attitude because of the culture that we live in. We have this attitude. I was told this multiple times by my own family growing up, that whatever consenting adults do, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, right? Like that's the boundary for morality. No one's hurt. Everybody agrees to it. Which, by the way, not bad boundary. Do that, right? But that can't be the only boundary. That's an appropriate boundary. It can't be the only one. God shows us in Jonah that our lives are made up of our moral decisions. And sooner or later, whatever's being built up is going to spill over. And I pray that it's good. I pray the Holy Spirit has been guiding, directing, and you've been open to the Spirit's encouragement, empowering, so that you are making good moral decisions, so that whatever spills over is Jesus, is goodness, and not 
the bad stuff. I've seen it. I've seen people abandon their kids and say things like, I'm going to go do what makes me happy now, right? I, I wasn't going to, I mean, this is too vulnerable, but I seen that because that was, that was my mom at 14 said to me, I've done what was required of me. I'm going to go do my own thing now. And I went, even at 14, I was like, I don't think that's how this works, right? I don't, my brother's 11. She's like, I'm going to go. And I see her three times a year. We live three miles apart. She's doing her thing. And she's, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, right? But that moral failing spilled over in such a way that it's still reeling from it, right? Sooner or later, it spills over. And I pray that you've been walking with Jesus enough that goodness spills over. Jonah 2 is a question about who is awake. These pagan hardened sailors are more sensitive to the divine than the prophet of God. And I'm telling you, and the fear of the Lord should hit you when you realize that we can get up and go to church every Sunday, but be dead asleep to the movement of God and our own harm that we cause to the people around us. And I'll leave it there. Except to say that God's grace might be in a storm as a possibility to try to wake you up or in a fish. What does God want us to do? We've got to get through the rest of the book. But essentially, chapter 2, Jonah is in the belly of the fish, and he does a little bit of a Hail Mary prayer. Um, he never apologizes. Never says sorry. Not really any repentance. He does say, thank you for always being faithfully close to me. And... If I get out of here, I will do the thing you asked me to do. His prayer, if you don't know, is made up of a bunch of different verses from Psalms. He was formed in his sacred movement, in his, in his you know, temple, and he takes all these words that he's read and he turns them to a big prayer. And God hears him and the fish vomits him onto land. Like, that's funny. That he gets puked out of a... Gets puked out of a fish. That's hilarious. Right? And then God says to him again, Go to the great city and preach to it. Declare against it the thing that I'm commanding you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's word. And Nineveh was an enormous city, three days' walk across. It was not three days' walk across. This is, this is an exaggeration. That'd be like 45 miles across. They're just Everyone who heard that, it was seven miles around. It was huge. It was the biggest city in the world at the time. But uh, it wasn't three days walk across. But the exaggeration is then, because Jonah started into the city, and he, he just walked one day. He is not, he's going to do the mission, but he's going to do it like as little as possible to get it accomplished. And so he walks one day in the city, so he's not even halfway into it. And he preaches a five-word sermon in Hebrew. Just 40 days more, and Nineveh will be overturned or overthrown. Hapak is the, is the Hebrew. Doesn't mention the sins that they committed, right? God said, they have committed evil. I want, I want you to declare against it. He doesn't mention any of that sins. 
doesn't mention what they need to do to repent. Doesn't even mention God's name. Doesn't even tell them what God to cry out to, to maybe even have a little bit of grace. 40 days more and it's done for. The end. Five words. Remember I told you paper, thin, consciousness. This great evil empire that destroys everybody it ever encounters like locusts on a field. Hearts are rent. They're so sad. They put on mourning cloth and ashes and they begin praying to the Lord, the right Lord somehow, even though Jonah doesn't help. They are so contrite and so repentant that even their cows have ashes and sackcloth on them. Their cows are repenting. Thank you for laughing. That's hilarious. The word reached the king of Nineveh, the most evil dude on the planet. He got up from his throne, stripped his clothes, and covered himself in mourning clothes. He announced in Nineveh by decree, the king's official, neither human or animal, cattle, flock will taste anything. Now they're fasting. No grazing, no drinking. Let humans and animals alike put on all these mourning clothes. Call upon the God forcefully and let all persons stop their evil behavior and the violence that's under their control. And he thought, who knows? God may see this and not cause us to perish. And God saw what they were doing, that they had ceased their evil behavior. So God stopped planning to destroy them. And he didn't. That's chapter three. Chapter four, Jonah is furious. Jonah thought this is utterly wrong and he became angry. And that's when he says to the Lord, that's why I fled, because you're too gracious and you're too loving and you are not willing to destroy. God's going to ask him three questions. And the first question is, is your anger justified? Jonah stonewalls him, doesn't even answer. Jonah goes and sits on a hill and he builds a hut because he's planning to be there for a while because it says he wants to see what's going to happen. Maybe Ninevites are going to repent from their repentance and God will ultimately just destroy this whole thing. He's just hoping against hope that God will actually send the thunderbolts and lightning even though he knows that that's not who God is. God is the one who is gracious and kind and merciful. And so God sends a plant that night to grow over him and shade him from the heat of the day. And Jonah has this great happiness about it. Everything's great, remember? And then the next night, God sends a tiny baby worm. Everything's great. Great ship, great storm, great happiness, great city. Baby tiny worm to eat the roots of the plant and it's destroyed and then God sends a, a, a hot day with a dry breeze to just make Jonah miserable. And so then God asks him the same question but with a twist. Is your anger about the plant being gone justified? This time, as he had said before, Jonah says, yes, just kill me. Just take me out. I want to be dead. This is the second time he's requested that. My anger is justified about the shrub. Yes, my anger is good, even to the point of death. And this is how the book ends. But the Lord said, you pitied. Really, you had an emotional response. You had overjoyed, and then you got over-angered about the shrub for which you didn't work and you didn't raise. It grew in a night and it perished in a night. Yet for my part... Can't I have 
an emotional experience. Can't I pity Nineveh, this great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also the cows. The, word, the book ends on cows. Can't I, can't I pity the people who don't know me or where to go or what to do? They're just lost. You had this great emotional reaction about this, this plant of comfort. Can't I have an emotional experience around this community of people that are lost? What does God want us to do? He wants us to choose community over our own comfort. He wants us to choose our enemies over our own enjoyment. God asks Jonah three questions. Is, is your anger a good thing? Is your anger about the shrub a good thing? Right? He's trying to get Jonah to see. Is your anger justified? No, it's not, but I'm going to let you have an angry situation. Then he, he does this whole parable about the shrub, and it's weird, but you get it. Is it, is it okay? Is your anger about this shrub a good thing? This is a genius tactic on God's part to try to get him away from thinking about his enemies and maybe start thinking about his own emotional reaction to this plant. And Jonah just says, yes, I'm angry, kill me. And then God finally asks him a question that gets to the heart of the point. Can't I care about your enemies? And that's the end of the book. And to wonder what Jonah's response to that question is, is to miss the point of the book. Because God's asking you. It ends on a question. And it ends on the word cows to remind you that it's satire because this is a question for you. God's asking you, is it okay if I love the people you hate? Is it okay if I love your enemies too? I think we would say yes. But Jesus has got a deeper invitation for us. This is a man by the name Gordon Wilson. He lived in Ireland during the 1900s. And if you don't know what was going on in the 80s, essentially what was going on was there was a lot of um, fighting going on in Ireland in the 60s, 70s, 80s, into the 90s between people that wanted Ireland to be its own country and people that wanted to be loyal to Britain, essentially. And even though it, there was a lot of violence, it wasn't a full-out war, but there was a lot of violence that happened. Gordon Wilson was a person who loved Jesus very much. Actually, he was a Methodist. I'm a Methodist. He's a good Methodist boy. And he was a draper in his city. But just like we have Memorial Day, they had a thing called Remembrance Day. And so they all went down to the town square to, to remember people who died in the British forces. But the opposing side, the IRA, the people that wanted Ireland to be its own country, planted bombs all around the celebration. And just before the celebration or the remembrance, they went off. And it killed about 11 people, injured 64 people. And Gordon Wilson and his daughter were trapped under a wall and close enough that they could hold hands. And soon afterwards, they both made it to a hospital. Somebody pulled them out. And in the hospital, his daughter passed away. And he survived. And the BBC came into his room with a camera and wanted to interview this poor fellow. And this is what he said. 
She held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. And she said, Daddy, I love you very much. And those were her exact words to me. And those were the last words I ever heard her say. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back. She's in heaven and we shall meet again. And I'll pray for these men tonight and every night. That interview went around the world. His words of forgiveness sparked something different. This historian of Ireland says, uh, no words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful and emotional impact. Mary McAleese ended up becoming one of the presidents of Ireland, and she wrote a book called Love and Chaos. And she cites this story as a turning point. This is a long quote, y'all. Bear with me. Gordon Wilson's words shamed us. It caught us off guard. They sounded so different from what we expected and what we were used to. They brought stillness with them. They carried a sense of the transcendent into the place so ugly we could hardly bear to watch. But he had his detractors and unbelievably his bags of hate mail. I didn't tell you. People said, you can't forgive them. That's what she's going to say. How dare you forgive, they shouted. What kind of father are you who can forgive your daughter's killers? It was as if they had never heard the command to love and forgive anywhere before. It was as if they were being spoken for the first time in history, in the history of humanity, and Christ had never uttered the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As one church-going critic of Gordon's said to me on the subject of Gordon Wilson, surely the poor man must have been in shock as if to offer love and forgiveness as a sign of mental weakness instead of spiritual strength. This is the scandal of grace. That Gordon knew that sometimes we forget. Is that as much as God loves us, God loves our enemies. And as much as God has forgiven us, God is offering that forgiveness to the people that we want least to experience the goodness of God. Gordon went on to become a senator, and he did peace campaigns throughout the region and helped in some of that infighting. Um, but he knows the dark side of mercy. He has answered yes to the question, is it okay that God asks us if I love the people who hurt you? After all, Romans tells us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And if in Jesus' death, while we were still God's enemies, God could save us, how much more, since Jesus is alive, can we be reconciled to God? We were God's enemies. And God forgave us and loved us and showed us mercy. And it's one thing for God to love us, and it's one thing for God to love our enemies, but Jesus invites us into that as fully reconciled people to love your enemies and to do good to those who hate you, and to bless those who curse you, and to pray for those who mistreat you. You are doing the thing now that God does. It's a whole leap. But that's what the healing of God wants for you in your life. So, who are your enemies? Maybe start with the question, who do you blame for trying to ruin our country? Or our community? or your family, or your life individually. 
The finger you point and blame may be God's direction for who you are to bless and love in Jesus' name. Questions? We are over time. I see none. So, what does God want us to know with our head? Whatever our version of the good life is, it might not be the same as God's. We need to do the work to make sure our life is lining up with God's and know that we have an impulse to do what we want to do with our heart. God wants us to know that our moral failings will spill out and impact the people around us and that the moral decisions you make make up your life. And lastly, with our hands, God is asking us to choose community over our comfort, to choose Nineveh over the plant, to choose our enemies over enjoyment. My encouragement to you uh, as a spiritual practice is to read the book of Jonah. It's four chapters. It'll probably take you 15 minutes. You read a chapter a day, cake. If you don't have a scriptures, I printed 10 copies out on that back table. You could take it home. It might be a little small, but it's there. And with that, I say, will you pray with me? Thank you, Father. Thank you for the story of this man's failure, that you would include a prophet who rebels to teach us about your love for even those whom we despise the most. Lord, convict us, challenge us, but ultimately, would it be a word of comfort to us because if you can love Ninevites, you can love anyone, including us. Thank you, Father. May we chew on Jonah's story for the rest of our lives. Father, now as we come to this time of communion, of receiving the bread and the cup, we pray that your presence would be here. We pray that it would be strength and comfort to us. We pray that this would be a time of, of confession for us, that you would be bringing things to mind that are, that are keeping us from you or putting a barrier between us and you our rebelliousness, our brokenness, our sinfulness. But it would be a reminder of your death that saved us and your continued life as you are with us. And we would give you all praise. Table Church, will you pray the end of this prayer with me by saying the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.